All right, we're going to start in John chapter 19 this morning, but we're going to, we're going to spend a ton of time in the book of Hebrews uh, today. But John chapter 19 is where we will start, and then uh, you'll be able to flip right over to Hebrews, I do believe, right after that. So glad that you guys are here, so excited to be able to jump in and be able to teach this morning. They tell us that you're supposed to have a short Easter sermon. I'm not sure I'm going to live up to that one, um, but I promise you there's some good stuff for us here uh, this morning. John chapter 19, verse 16, uh, going back to the events of Good Friday. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with, with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. And this is the key part I want to draw our attention to this morning. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So I take us back to the events of the crucifixion. I take us back to uh, the moments on Good Friday, right as Jesus is, is lifted up on the cross. And, uh, and, and John gives us this very important detail. So we have the detail about the sign up above Jesus' head that says that he is the king of the Jews. And we have this detail about a seamless tunic, not just a tunic, not just Jesus' clothes. That's what all the other, uh, the, uh, other gospel writers write about is that, that the, uh, the clothes were, were gambled for, but a seamless tunic. So something very, very specific here. And the reason that I want to draw your attention to that is because we have in, in two, and you could maybe even argue three, but two very explicit examples We have Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Priest and king are very clear to us here. So the king part is obvious because he has a sign that says, Jesus, king of the Jews. The, The priest part we missed just a little bit, but this is what the whole seamless tunic is about. The seamless tunic that the priest would wear whenever he would go into the Holy of Holies was specifically ascribed to him that only he could wear a robe like that in order to go in and make sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. And so what Jesus was wearing as he went to be crucified was the royal priestly robes that only the priest could wear, only the priest should be wearing. And so the point John is making is that he is not only king, he is also our priest. And this is what we've been talking about here the last couple of weeks at Providence. We've been talking about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And now I realize some of you theology nerds get super fired up whenever I start talking about a sermon like that. You're like, oh, this is going to be good. I'm looking forward to this. I got my notebook out. I got my pencil out. I'm ready to go. Let's talk theology. But I also know that some of you guys are like, what? What are we talking about prophet, priest, and king? What, what, what is it that we're actually going to be, be talking about here? And you're super confused because you're like, did I walk into a Catholic church or an Episcopalian or an Anglican church? I didn't think you were a pastor. You're not wearing, or, or I didn't think you were a priest. You're not wearing one of those collars. You're not doing that kind of thing. I thought you were a, a pastor. Why are we going to talk about priests at all? After all, we don't do that here 
uh, at Providence, and you're already bored. Like, you're already checked out, and you're like, prophet, priest, king, whatever, I don't know those words. We've moved on. To which I say to all that, fair enough. I get it. We don't use those words today. Those are not in everyday conversation. Prophet sounds like something that comes from Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Uh, kings are reserved for, uh, for Lord of the Rings and fantasy novels or for like history shows on TV. And priest is the guy with the collar. Priest is the guy that, uh, that with the collar and frankly today has a lot of other connotations with it uh, as well. Uh, and so we, we, don't, we don't really understand these words in our context today whenever we talk about these things. Uh, we don't use these words, and we certainly have no idea what these words and these people have to do with us today. But I want to suggest to you that simply because you aren't familiar with these terms doesn't mean that they aren't relevant to you. Just because you didn't walk in here thinking about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, or thinking about any prophets or any priests or any kings does not mean that that doesn't, uh, that that doesn't have an impact on you and your life. And so we're going to go on a bit of a theology ride this morning. Some of you guys are going to need to hang on. Some of you guys are going to uh, love all of this, but you're going to hang with me. And I think by the time we get to the end, you will have a great appreciation for what it means that Jesus is a priest. Uh, we'll, like I said, we'll be in the book of Hebrews. So like you can turn on over, the, over to that now and we'll, we'll get to Hebrews chapter one here in just a few minutes. But as you turn to Hebrews chapter one, I want to introduce you to two people whose lives will intersect in a very powerful way. And now I'm not going to get to the, 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 the end of the story. I just want to introduce you to these two guys. Uh, neither one of these two guys know each other. Uh, and, and frankly, not, neither one of these two guys have anything in common except for the fact they had no idea they were going to be in my Easter sermon this Sunday. Uh, this guy is Art Allen. Art is a good dude. Art is a really good guy. He works for the U.S. Coast Guard, and he's an oceanographer. Now, if you're like me, you have no idea what an oceanographer really does. So I Googled it, and I said, what does an oceanographer do? And Google said, an oceanographer studies the ocean. So that was super helpful for Google uh, for me. Uh, it turns out, though, that Art isn't just any kind of oceanographer. He's an award-winning oceanographer, and he's really, really good at what he does. In fact, he might be the only person in the history of the world that does what he does, and he's really good at it. Now, the second guy is a guy named Mike uh, Mankemeyer, and yes, that is the best picture I could get of him. Uh, Mike is a guy who likes vacation. Uh, more specifically, he's a guy that likes cruise ships. He takes cruises a lot. He likes to eat on those cruises a lot. He also likes to drink on those cruises a lot. Uh, Mike and Art don't know each other, yet on March 16th, 2007, their stories would intersect in ways that neither one of them saw coming. At least, certainly, Mike did not see that coming. So, just put those two guys, Art and Mike, in the back of your head. We'll come back to them here in just uh, a few minutes, because their story will, I think, help us understand this idea of Jesus as our priest. Uh, so before we get to, to the rest of their story, I want to look at exactly what a priest is, what a priest does, uh, and then I want to start to make a few applications for us and for our life on Easter Sunday. And if we want to know what a priest is, there's no better place to go than the book of Hebrews, because it, frankly, the entire book 
is an explanation of the priestly role of Jesus. There's a part of me that says we should just read the book of Hebrews at this point, uh, and, and then we could, we could walk out of here because it is, uh, it is so uh, good. But we don't, we don't have time for me to expound on all of it, so I'm just going to pick and choose a handful of verses and walk through that. So Hebrews 1 is where I want to start because it shows us all three of those roles as Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Before I read Hebrews 1, though, I want to explain what all three of those terms are. Now, this is going to be a pretty simple definition. You could argue some nuances to this, but these three definitions, I think, give us a good idea and will serve us for our purposes this morning. First, a prophet is a person that communicates the word of God to the people, a person that communicates the word of God to to the people. We saw this with Elijah over the last few weeks. Now specifically, he was communicating to the king, but he was also communicating to the people of Israel. Communicates the word of God to the people. A priest is a person that intercedes between man and God on behalf of the people, typically through sacrifice and cleansing. So the prophet delivers the word, the priest stands between God and man and intercedes on behalf of the people. And a king We kind of have an idea of a king, but biblically speaking, a king is a person that exercises rule and dominion on behalf of God in a given time, in a given place. So like I said, we could could play around with those definitions for a while, but those will serve us for the time being this morning. So let's let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 and see how Jesus fulfills all three of those definitions. 1-1 ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our people or to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son so there he is right there's prophet right off the beginning whom he appointed heir of all things that inheritance language is kingly language that he is heir and over all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, the power that it's, that's, uh, that's exhorted there, that is, again, kingly language. And after making purification for sins, now priestly language. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than, than theirs. Verse 5, for to which, which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will to him be a father, and he, will, shall, he shall be to me a son. This is quoting from the Psalms, and this is quoting kingly Psalms, this is quoting royal Psalms uh, that he has there. And then if you skip down to verse 8, it says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So do you see all three of those roles there? Prophet, priest, king. That's the three offices of Christ is how that is is referred to. So he helps us out, just lays it all out right there in the opening verses of his book. Here's what I'm writing you about. Jesus who fulfills all. All three of these things. Now, if you go with me to Hebrews chapter 5, the the author of Hebrews is going to make a shift from talking about all three of these things to the deep dive on the priestly function of Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You can't do much better than that than a definition of the role 
of the priest in the nation of Israel. The writer of Hebrews lays this out for us. And so the question becomes, how does Jesus specifically do this for us? How does a sinless Savior act on behalf of sinful people? Now, don't check out on me here. I told you we got some theology here. Hang with me as we go through this, because some of you think that that, that answer, simple question, how does, the, how does Jesus do this for us? A sinless Savior act on behalf of sinful people. Some of you guys are like, okay, look, this is the ABCs. We've got this. We understand how this works. We, I, you know, I learned this in like fourth grade Sunday school. We're good here. And then others of you guys are, 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 are like, man, this is just heady theology. I don't need this stuff this morning. I just need you to get me through and, and help me have a good Easter. So hang with me because this is going to be helpful for us. I want you to look at three different things that must be true about a priest. Three things come straight out of that, first, that chapter 5, verse 1. Three things that must be true about a priest. One, he must be able to represent us. In other words, he must be chosen among men. He has to be representative of us. That's what the priest must be. Two, the priest must offer sacrifice for sin. This is his basic, basic function. And three, the sacrifice and the interceding must be in relation to God. So the priest is not here to make atonement between parties like a judge. The priest is here in order to make, uh, make atonement and reconcile the, the, the relationship between God and man. So let's kind of work, work backwards here through this. So the third one is the first one that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at here and see why Jesus must be our priest and why Jesus is the only one that could truly fulfill this role. Remember whenever I talked about prophet and priest the last couple of weeks, the whole thing we're trying to say is that where the priests fail, or where the kings failed, and where the prophets failed, Jesus stepped in and fulfilled those roles perfectly. The same is what we're going to do here for the next few minutes to look at the priest. So the, the, the first one I'll cover, which is the last one on the list here, the sacrifice is in relation to God. In other words, our primary problem that you and I walked in here with this morning is, in humans is not that we endure sickness and suffering and pain. It's not that we endure broken relationships or a lonely existence. Our problem is not primarily one of joy or pain, but that our relationship with our Creator has been destroyed by our own sin and our own rebellion against God. You may not have walked in here knowing that this morning. You may have walked in here thinking the biggest problem that you had is you're a paycheck short this month. You may have walked in here thinking the biggest problem that you have is that you have not, uh, you've not been able to, to reconcile a relationship or you're dealing with a problem or you're working through something at work or you've got family issues that you're dealing with. But what this writer of scripture tells us very clearly is that our biggest problem is that our relationship with God has been fractured. It has been severed beyond repair on our behalf. We cannot say we're sorry enough. We cannot repair that relationship on our own. The problem is that is not, even though that is our biggest problem, it's not the problem that we feel the most. It's not the problem that we wake up thinking about the most. It doesn't feel like our biggest problem, but in Scripture that clearly is our biggest problem. We are in desperate need of a rescue. But here's the problem with our desperate need of a rescue in this relationship with God. We can't even initiate the rescue. 
We can't even initiate. We are dependent upon someone else to come for us, to look for us, to find us, and to save us. Not only can we not initiate the rescue, we don't even think we need the rescue. We think we're doing pretty okay. We think we're kind of hanging out and, and making it. And life isn't all that bad. Part of the message of Easter, part of the message of Good Friday, is that we're not doing okay at all. That we desperately need something else. That we need to be reconciled to God. The second one now. The entire book of Leviticus is written to help us, or is written to help the, the Jewish people work through this idea of sin. The entire book of Leviticus is written to help the Jewish people sort through what, what to do with all the different ways that they have broken their relationship with God. And if you read the book of Leviticus, then what you will see is that there, the, the book is, is, is covered in blood figuratively speaking, but you read through it, it's, it's, it's talking about the sacrifice here and the blood that must be spilt, the sacrifice here and the blood that must be spilt, the sacrifice for this sin and the blood that must be spilt, the sacrifice for this and the blood that must be spilt. There's blood everywhere on those pages. The sacrificial system was instituted to dramatically create a picture that the consequences of sin is death. Now, this has, been, this has been true since the very beginning with Adam. God told him, do not eat of the tree because the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And then Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The sacrificial system that is instituted by Israel illustrates this point. But instead of the sinner absorbing the penalty of death and wrath as means of payment and justice, a substitute is provided on their behalf. A lamb or a bull or a goat. It is grace given by God. Now, it doesn't eliminate the penalty of death, but it does provide a means by which God's wrath is tempor temporarily withdrawn from sinners for the moment and that they don't, they don't feel the immediate impact of their sin with death right but what's clear as you read through this sacrificial system is that sin always brings death with it always that's part of what the sacrificial system is meant to teach us and now the the third which was the the first in our list the priest must be able to represent us the priest must be able to represent us because he is chosen from among men. The priestly line in Israel has descended from the Levites and specifically from Aaron, but, but they were not some other people. You could not just be some random person to be able to stand in. They were Israelites. In order to, be, to intercede on behalf of Israel, the representative of Israel needed to be of Israel. They could not be representative of something if they were not of that thing. And this is where Jesus is able to fulfill this role uniquely. Were Jesus to remain eternally the, the, the son and not take on human nature, he would not be able to fully serve for us as a priest because he could not stand in 
as our representative. Are you guys tracking with me? So if, if Jesus never comes, if Christmas never happens, if there's no incarnation, if Jesus doesn't take on flesh and become a man, if Jesus just remains, just remains eternally with the Father, never taking on a human nature, he cannot be our priest. He has to come and take on our nature. And so then when he comes in the incarnation, he becomes the God-man. He is as much man as if he were not God, and he is as much God as if he were not man. And he is the only one that can now step into this role as priest because he is a man like us. He can step in and be an an interceder for us on our behalf because he is from us. He is of us, the same, the same essence of us. He is a man. And it says that he has, to, he has to act on behalf of man. Because Jesus came and took on flesh, he can now do that. Now, we can spend hours working through this and make your head hurt and make your head spin. But what is clearly seen in the incarnation is that Jesus became man so that he might be able to become our priest and intercede for us. If you look in, in, in Hebrews chapter 7, we'll, 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 the writer of Hebrews is going to try to explain how Jesus fulfills this role of priest for us. So he's going he's to shift a little bit. He's going to start giving us a theology lesson about how Jesus is able to do this. Again, on, in, in the way that only a God-man is able to. Now, chapter 6, in the beginning of chapter 7, we, we hear about how Jesus is the, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is this, this kind of mysterious figure that, that uh, meets Abraham and is able to offer a sacrifice on behalf of Abraham and then uh, is, is referred back to from the writer of Hebrews, but kind of establishes this idea of, of being the priest. And then in cha- the end of chapter 7, it's like, okay, here's how Jesus steps in to that role. So we'll pick up in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22. It says this makes the fact that Jesus is the priest, it says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You know what a guarantor is, right? That's the person who signs for the loan. When you can't pay the loan, they step up and they pay the loan for you, right? This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. So old priest did it, but didn't do it quite like Jesus can do it. They fulfilled the role of priest, but they can't fulfill it permanently because they all died. Jesus, on the other hand, is able to continue in this office. He holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself." For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect for 
ever. So do you follow the logic of the writer of Hebrews here? Do you follow what he is saying for us? He's saying that these priests had to make, make offerings over and over and over, and they had to cover their own sin, and they had to cover the sin of, of, uh, of all of Israel, and they had to keep doing it. And then when one would die, another would come and take their place. When one would die, another would come and take their place. But with Jesus, he does not die. He came back to life, and now he is with the Father, and with the Father, he intercedes for us on the basis of one sacrifice, on the basis of one time that it was done, and that's all that is needed. That's all that is needed. It's so good. It's all explaining how Jesus is like the human priest, but better. How Jesus is, he does the same function, but he does it fully. The human priests need replacements because they sin and because they die. Jesus does not sin, nor does Jesus die. He came back, and since he has come back and since he is alive, he is able to save, and he is able to save, I love this phrase, to the uttermost, which is good because I need a Savior that will save me to the uttermost. A half-hearted, half-applied offer of salvation is not going to cut it for me. A half-hearted rescue attempt is not going to cut it for me. A rescue attempt that throws out to me the life preserver and says, swim and get to it is not going to work for me because I am a dead man walking. My heart is too selfish and my resolve too weak. I need someone to come and get me, to pull me in. I need a full rescue. I need someone to save me to the utter most. And this is why I want to go, this is where I want to go back and, and introduce you to the two guys that, that are, and, and talk to you about the two guys I introduced to you at the beginning, Mike and Art. Now, I told you on March 16th, 2007, the stories of these two guys uh, w- would inter- intersect. You see, on the morning of March 15th, Mike woke up and he was like most people on a cruise ship. What he needed was a buffet. And what he needed what he needed was some suntan lotion, uh, and he needed to make his friends laugh and make his friends like me, like him. And he found all of those things. Uh, in fact, he found a little more than that, because later that evening, he found an open bar, too. And he proceeded to do what a lot of people do on a cruise. He got hammered. Like, he got blackout drunk. Like, he got the, okay, this is going to be something we're going to tell stories about, and why I'm about to tell you a story about him right now. He got completely drunk, so drunk that he thought it would be funny to take a dead sprint off the balcony from the room in his cruise ship while they were at sea. This is not like in port. This is at sea. And he did that. Took a dead sprint, jumped off of his balcony from his cruise ship, 60 feet up above, hit the water, and the cruise ship kept on going. I don't know if his friends laughed. I don't know if they thought it was funny. I don't know if they freaked out. But the cruise ship kept on going. Now, they alerted the, the, the proper authorities on the cruise ship. I don't even know how you do that. I, there's not like a stop button that you hit like, on a, you know, like in a bus. Uh, but but they, eventually, the cruise ship stops. But they, those things don't stop on a, on a dime. And by the time the cruise ship had stopped, it had churned far away. And Mike was nowhere to be found. It had left him alone, and at some point in that water, Mike realized that he desperately needed something much more than he needed a drink, which is what he thought he needed just a few hours before. 
he needed rescued. He needed to be saved. Fortunately for him, the other guy I introduced you to earlier, Art, is an oceanographer. Now, Art Allen is a guy who devoted his life to the study of the ocean, specifically to what happens to people when they are stranded at sea. You see, he was an expert. And as best we can tell, he's probably the only person to be an expert in this in the history of the world. He became an expert some 20 years before as a young Coast Guard member. He had sat in, uh, in like a field office in a control room and he had watched as a young family disappeared at sea and no one could find them. They died. They were eventually found a few days later in a capsized boat, but it was too late at that point. And he wondered if they knew something. It turns out that they were looking in completely the wrong places for the, the, this boat. And it made Art wonder, if, if, if we knew more about where this family should be whenever they are adrift at sea, maybe we could have found them, and maybe we could have saved their life. And so he set out to try and figure this out. And it set Art out on a passion where, on his own time, independent of his work with the Coast Guard, he would go out into the Long Island Sound, and he would drop things in the water. He would drop life rafts and... Uh, and, and, and uh, dummies that represented humans and larger boats that had been become derelict and nobody used. He would launch those at different places and he would chart them. He would follow them and he would figure out where the wind would take them and where the ocean currents would take them. And he would chart all of these things, created a mathematical formula to know if the person weighs this much, is this big, if the vessel is this much or this big, if all, all these different factors would factor in there. We can have within a reasonable range a pretty good idea of where these people should be so he spent that 20 years becoming an expert in that very specific thing he was literally the only person in the world to ever do this for all of human history people lost at sea were essentially just gone forever there was no expert to come and find them because the sea just swallowed you up when Mike woke up that morning, he thought he needed a lot of things. He thought he needed food and beer. He thought he needed to impress his friends and to have a good time. But by the end of the night, Mike desperately needed an oceanographer. Not just any oceanographer. He needed an oceanographer that was an expert in finding people that were adrift at sea. Sixteen hours after Mike took his drunken leap into the ocean, a Coast Guard clipper spotted him, waving his arms and desperately looking to be saved. He had a collapsed lung. He was probably within hours of sinking and dying. But he was saved. Saved by something he never thought he needed. Something he did not know to look for. Saved by work done some 20 years prior to his falling in the ocean. Saved by a process he could never hope to initiate or execute saved by something far outside of himself. And so it is with us. We desperately need to be saved. But we go through most of life thinking we need a drink, or we need to make more money, or we need to feel more comfortable, or we need to impress our friends, or we need to, to get any number of things. But we don't really wake up thinking we need a rescue. Like Mike, who didn't think he needed an oceanographer, you may have come in here this morning thinking you don't need a priest. But you could not be more wrong. 
You may not even know fully what a priest does any more than, than Mike knew what an oceanographer did. But art, the oceanographer's faithfulness to study the ocean, saved Mike. And I need Jesus more than I can fathom, far more than, than Mike even needed art. I need a priest, and so do you. Jesus' faithfulness is the only thing that can save us. It's the other part of the Easter story, that God has initiated the rescue. Part of the Easter story, Good Friday, shows how much we needed a rescue. The other part of the Easter story shows us that God initiated that rescue. He's come for us, and he's provided for us the means for our rescue. We didn't know to ask for it. We never would have asked for it because we were enemies to God. We wouldn't wouldn't have known to ask for it because God set this plan into motion before the foundation of the world. Listen to how Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, verse 19. But when the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It was planned before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The cross is not a backup plan. The resurrection was not a, oh man, we messed this up, let's fix this. The cross was the plan before the foundation of the world. And we can start to think about the cross and how God is able to save us and how God loves us at the cross. We can kind of look at the cross, I think, in, in a backwards way, right? We can look at the cross and we can say, man, thank goodness for Good Friday. Because Jesus has paid my sin, now God can love me. But that's not how it works. Jesus paid your sin because God loves you. The love comes first, the payment comes, sep- comes second, right? The, inesh- the, the, the rescue is initiated out of the love of God. He doesn't wait for you to save yourself before he sends the boat. He sent the boat because you needed it. As John Stott says, God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. God came for us not so that he could love us again, but because he never stopped. We can't quite end here, though. We need to know what this rescue plan actually consists of. How did Jesus save us? After all, a priest can only intercede on behalf of the sinner. The priest doesn't do the atoning. The priest doesn't do the saving. But this is, again, where Jesus is uniquely qualified to fulfill this role. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living 
God. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying here? He says that Jesus, our great high priest, serves a dual purpose. You see, the high priest needed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. He needed to go into the Holy of Holies within the temple. And whenever he did, he brought the blood with him in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. He would take the the blood of the sacrifice and he would go to this place. But when Jesus goes into this place as our high priest, he doesn't bring the blood of a bull. He brings his own sacrificial blood poured out on our behalf. Jesus is able to serve as the high priest that mediates and intercedes for us and as the sacrifice, both. He's the high priest and the lamb. He's the interceder and the provider. He's the one that pleads our case and what he pleads is his own death in our place. I want you to listen to this quote from John Stott. It's a little bit long, but I want you to listen to this. He says, the biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts the penalties which belong to man alone. He steps in as our substitute. He offers the intercession and provides the sacrifice. He doesn't just save us. He saves us to the uttermost. And he doesn't just make a way for us. He pleads our case before the Father. I had my heart pounding this week as I considered this truth, that Jesus pleads our case. Let me read just a couple of verses. I've already read Hebrews 7.25. Let me read two more that make this case. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for those that are his, for those that he he has saved for those that have turned their sin over to him. I want you to think about what that means for you for just a second. I used to picture salvation. You know, it talks about in the book of Revelation about how those who belong to Christ, who those, those that Jesus have saved, their name would be written in the book of life. You guys have heard that phrase before, right? That our name would be written to the book of life. And somehow in my mind's eye, the picture that I had, I don't even think I realized I had this picture until I considered this truth this week. Somehow in my mind's eye, it, it was like going to a restaurant where you have reservations, Right? 
and you walk up to the hostess and you say, we got reservations to do for two. Now, this is a nice restaurant. You're probably not, I'm probably not dressed right to get into the restaurant. I'm probably not the typical clientele. I don't have the money to really eat there, but I've got reservations and, I'm, and, and, and it's a big splurge for us, right? So I go up and I say, you, need, you got reservations for two for walls. And then you stand there as they scan the reservation book and your heart kind of skips a beat just a little bit because you know it's like a Friday night and it's busy and that if they don't have your reservation, you're like taking your wife to Chick-fil-A. Not that that's ever happened to me. But you, you know that, that if you don't get in, if you don't get in and your name's not on that reservation list, you're in trouble. And as they scan and they can't find your name, you're like, oh, this is not good. I called. I know I did. I think. I think I did. Did I? I I know I called. My name's got to be on the list somewhere in there. And then they finally find your name. And it's like, oh, here it is. Yeah, you're good. You just got like a 10-minute wait. I, I kind of like just didn't even realize that. I think that was my view of heaven. Like, I would get to heaven, and it would be like, my name's on the list. I know it's got to be on the list. I hope my name's on the list. Just check it. Like, just check. Make sure my name's on the list. Like that that's how it was. And that, that whoever's checking the list, they would be like, oh, here you are. I didn't think you'd be on this list, but you're here, actually. I didn't think that you would be there, but you're here, so I guess you get in. Like that's kind of how I thought it would go. But this truth that Jesus as our high priest intercedes for us, what this means is that, that our name didn't just kind of slide into the list through some like online reservation system. No, no, no. It means that Jesus calls out your name every day before the Father saying, he's mine, he gets in. That's what it means. He knows your name. He's pleading on your behalf. He's saying, he's with me. He gets to come in, not because of his merit. He sure doesn't belong here, but he's with me. He gets to come in. I know him. His name is Tony. He gets to come in. That's how that works. He pleads on our behalf. We don't sneak in because our name ended up on the list. We get in because he pleads for us, because he is there for us. Oh, it is so good for us to know this truth. It is so powerful for us to know this. He is our priest who intercedes on our behalf, and he is our sacrifice that pays the way. The only reason we get to come is because of Jesus, but it's the only reason that we need. And Hebrews 9, 27 says this. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He comes back for us, rescuing us eagerly waiting for him. I could do this all afternoon, man. I could keep going, but we got to stop somewhere. So this morning, as we celebrate Easter, we aren't just remembering this thing that happened once upon a time. We aren't just remembering this thing that happened in some historical sense. We're considering that Jesus' death and resurrection, what it means for us, that he came to rescue us from our sins, from our rebellion, while we were still rebelling, while we were still sinning. He did not wait for us to call out for rescue. He set in, plans the motion, set in motion the plans for rescue before the foundation of the world. He initiated the rescue and he came for us. And Easter is the proof that the rescue is real 
and that God has done it. But that rescue is only yours if you will accept it. The work of the priest is only done on behalf of the people of God. Those that recognize him as the the word, the prophet, and as king. And submit to him, not just as king of the Jews, but king of yourself. This morning, won't you do that? Won't you, won't you come to the Father? Won't you come to the Son? Won't you come to this high priest and say, I need that covering atonement? I woke up this morning and I thought I needed a drink and I thought I needed some more money and I thought I needed some more friends and I thought I needed all of these other things, but I realize now that I'm in need of rescue and I need a priest. And not just any priest. I need the great high priest, the one who, when he died, tore the veil into the holy of holies because he is now the priest and he intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, we'll end with this. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Remember, this was just meant to be a picture for us, the atonement, the sacrifices, all this. It was just meant to be a picture. It never actually takes away the sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he sit down? Because the work is done. What did he say? It is finished. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you and me if we're in Christ. In a single offering, he has perfected us. Not that we obtain it now, but that that is what he has given us on Easter. Jesus, our great high priest. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess that we want so many things. We long for so many things. We wake up and our heart chases after so many things. And almost always it's chasing after the wrong things. Things that lead to death and destruction. Things that lead to false hope. Clinging to to, to whatever will, will, will help us just kind of float through the ocean and float through the storm. But all of those things, Father, we confess will will fall away and they are no hope at all. And so, Father, our corporate confession is this morning that we need a rescue. And our corporate celebration this morning is that you have provided it. Our rescuer, our hope. Long before we ever knew that we needed it. While we were yet sinners, you came for us. Father, I pray this morning that no one would leave this place standing outside the blood of Christ with no high priest offering or interceding on their behalf. But that we would walk out of this place knowing that Jesus stands in the gap for us. And that we are covered by his blood for our sins. It's in Christ's name we pray.
Amen. We're going to sing these songs. I'll be available standing at the back. I would love to pray with you. If this is stuff that, that maybe you've not heard or maybe you don't know what it means to call yourself a Christian, you don't know what it means that Jesus is your king, you don't know what it, what it, what it would require for Jesus to be your priest, I'd love nothing more than to be able to talk with you. There's so many others here that would love to talk with you this morning. Don't leave here until you have sorted that out. That's the whole reason for Easter. It's not so we can get dressed up and show up at church. We show up at church because we celebrate this. That's why we do it every Sunday.